0: Hello and welcome to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. I'm Martha Sutsui billens and today's episode is with Gillam Belmar. Gillum as a friend of the pod. He came on to Field Notes uh, last season in episode 14 to talk about fieldwork in the time of COVID and what we thought, what our thoughts were on whether people should be doing fieldwork. Um, at that time, nobody knew how this pandemic was going to stretch out. So if you want to listen to a bit of a, a moment in time from language documentation in COVID, uh, you can check that episode out. Gillem is a PhD researcher at uh, UC Santa Barbara, and he obtained his BA from the Autonomous University of Barcelona and his MAs at the National Distance Education in Spain and the University of Groningen. And he's just someone I really admire. He's really an activist for Catalan. He's a Catalan person, um, and he's done a lot of work with researching language policy, translation. He also does quite a lot on social media, and he runs a hashtag Europe Minority Languages Project. Um, so, so yeah, I'm really excited to share this episode. The last time Gillum came on the pod, we didn't really have a chance to speak much about his own, his own language and his own, how, and how his, his identity as a minority language speaker has influenced his work as a linguist. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to share this with you and, um, just an announcement before we dive into the episode, uh, I will be taking a very brief podcast sabbatical next month in September 2021. So there will not be an episode being released September 2021, but there will still be a bonus Patreon episode. So if you have already listened to all the Field Notes episodes, you can check out the Patreon. I post one mini bonus app each month and next month will be no exception. So there will still be a bonus app for Patreon supporters. And if you're interested in checking out the Field Notes Patreon, it's at patreon.com forward slash Field Notes podcast. Thank you so much. Hi, Gillum. How are you doing?
1: Hi, doing fine. Thank you.
0: Oh, great. Well, thanks so much for coming onto Field Notes again. So to start, can you just share with some of our listeners who maybe haven't heard our first episode with you, episode 14, uh, just a bit about who you are and where you are and what work you are doing in linguistics?
1: Sure. I'm the Gilliam. I ara mateix visc a Califòrnia, a Santa Bàrbara, però vinc de, de Catalunya, de Girona. I estudio, estic estudiant lingüística, un doctorat en lingüística, i em dedico sobretot a estudiar doncs, documentació, a processos de minorització i revitalització lingüística. So, my name is uh, Guillem Belmar. And I, uh, I am now in uh, Santa Barbara in California uh, doing my PhD in Linguistics, uh, although I, I come from Girona in Catalonia. And I my, my studies, I focus in revitalization, also in documentation, and I study mostly um, processes of marginalization, how we can uh, contest them and fight them.
0: Awesome. So can you give... Uh, some background to your experience with Catalan, like you're a Catalan person, Catalonian person, uh, which is it?
1: Yeah, um, I'm not entirely sure in English how you would uh, how you would go about it. Um, I mean, in Catalan, the word is the same for both a uh, person and the language, and so okay. like I don't know, I would go maybe in Catalan. But um, so yeah, I I was born there. Um, Catalan is my first language. Uh, It's the language that I always spoke at home with my parents and with my grandparents. I did have, like... I do have a couple of uncles uh, with whom I... um, or who would speak Spanish to me. I I don't always um, speak Spanish to them because it's very normal to just mix everything. But yeah, back home, so Catalan is the language that I spoke with my parents or with my grandparents, with my sibling, with most of my friends. Um, My... my grandparents, um, so the only grandparents that I ever socialized with were the, were my father's, uh, parents. And they come from the, from the south of Valencia. Um, and they speak also, um, Catalan, but they're, they're their own variety of Catalan. Um, but they have been living for so long and, and, you don't know that now they have like a, kind of like a, a mix of different, um, of different varieties of Catalan. But I've always spoke Catalan at home. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's a very important part of who, of who I am and my identity, um, and how I choose to, um, to identify myself and to present myself. And also, um, I think it's a very important part of what led me to study linguistics and especially like focusing on minorities.
0: Yeah, can you tell us more about that, about how your experience as a Cal- Catalan person has influenced your work as a linguist and like how you got into linguistics?
1: Yeah, sure. So, because, so be- because Catalan is my first language, I think I grew up very aware of the fact that I was part of a minority, um, because it's also a very common topic of discussion back home. How Catalan is minoritized, how we have to do something to normalize Catalan, et cetera, et cetera. So, this is is so, it's such a mainstream discourse that if you, if Catalan is your first language, you grow up very aware that, um, that you are part of a minority and there's something that needs to be done. On top of that, there was also, there's also the issue of my name. Like, um, when I grow, when I was growing up, there were not a lot of people with my name. Um, and it's, um, so it's 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 also a name that like it's Guillem, and a lot of for a lot of Spanish speakers, it's difficult to pronounce some of these sounds, or or maybe not like the it's not like an M is a problem for Spanish speakers, but ending a word with an M is a problem. So there's like there's a few issues there for Spanish speakers that makes it very easy uh, for like for me growing up, it was easy that my name was mispronounced or that people would. For uh, for like for their comfort, would change to the Spanish version of my name instead of the Catalan one. And I remember growing up, this was something that made me very very angry because it wasn't my name. Um, so you know, like even even the, even the issue of my name already like as a, as a very young kid made me realize that th- there might be something there um, that that needs to be addressed. And then growing up and. Um, Getting more interested in other minorities in around the areas, such so as like the Basques, which a lot of, a lot of Catalans that get interested in minorities uh, kind of like uh, at some point study Basque or, or want to know something more about the Basques. And then from, from that, well, so I learned a bit of Basque and I learned that, um, their situation was different, similar mm-hmm. enough, but still like, Different, so you start saying that not everyone is in the same position, right? Even minorities, like in this spe- spectrum of whatever you call minority, there's so many different things. And then you, so I, I, I continued um, investigating a bit more about the issue and like researching and reading and seeing that actually, like I come from a minority that in the in the category of minority is quite well off in comparison to others, and then what that meant and um trying to understand how that how that was and if these if some of if some things uh from from one minority can help the other or you know like trying to understand how is that there's this thing that is this uh, the same process of minorization, but why is it in so different in so in so many different places? And of course so there's there's so many reasons, like the historical reasons, there's also the fact that um, a lot of, so in the, fact, in the case of Catalans, for example, or we just, let's just say for most traditional minorities or ethnolinguistic minorities in Western Europe, um, you are a minority because you speak a different language from the dominant language of the nation state, and also because you have some certain cultural expressions that are different from what is mainstream in the nation state, but you're not a minority because of race, for example, um, so there's a, there's a layer of minorization that, that doesn't apply to you. In other words, you can kind of pass as the majority if you want, right? Uh, whereas that's not the case everywhere. So, you know, like, from my own experience of minorization, then you realize that there are so many other experiences of minorization. And that, that's something that I, that I found fascinating and that, uh, that led me to, yeah, to study linguistics, but from this perspective of, of minorization,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. I definitely want to talk more about Basque for sure. Um, I'm also interested in Basque, like I think so many people are. But first, can we talk a little bit about what is the language context of Catalan? Like you said, that you know, it's it's quite a large language for a minority language. Um, can you just give some more context about like what the situation is?
1: Um, so the context of uh of Catalan, as I yes, I was saying before is it's quite a large language in terms of numbers. If we compare it to other minority languages. if we are very, very optimistic with numbers, we may say that there are around ten million speakers um and that is everyone who can say something in the language. Native speakers, it's probably four and a half million, something like that. That's more or less, but that that's still like quite quite a large number. It's um, it's also spoken in in different areas, and therefore the social linguistic situation is very different in different administrative regions. Um, so I grew up in in Catalonia, which is um, currently nowadays still um, an autonomous community of Spain in the north east. And it's, it's also, it's the place also where most of the speakers live. And then it's also spoken in the autonomous community of Valencia in Spain and the autonomous community of the Balearic Islands in Spain, as well as in one small region of the small, uh, of the autonomous community of Aragon, which is neighbor, neighboring, um, Catalonia. It's also spoken in the small country of Andorra in the Pyrenees. Uh, where is the only official language in the country? So that's the only country in the world that has Catalan as the official language, and then it's also spoken in the um, in a small area in southern France that um, that we call Northern Catalonia, uh, that was historically part of Catalonia, part of the lands controlled by the by the Count of Barcelona until. I don't remember exactly what year, but in what, in, in one war between Spain and France, they just redrew the border and it became part of France. And then it's also spoken in a small city in the, in the island of Sardinia, a small city called Alghero, the island of Sardinia, which is now in, um, in Italy. So yeah, it's spoken in very different regions and the language policy, the situation of the language is very different in, in, in all of these, uh, in all of these areas, for example, in southern France, in northern Catalonia, intergenerational transmission stopped maybe a couple of generations ago. So, what they have to like, what they're doing now to revitalize the language is completely different from what um, Catalonia is doing, for example. And where the intergenerational transmission didn't really stop in Catalonia, like it stopped in some places for some families, like in cities and. Maybe some people that that um, that read some upper classes stop transmission, but like it didn't stop as a whole. It was more the thing of all of a sudden there's so many new people that came from other places that don't speak the language, that so how do we do this? So it it's a completely different story from uh, from Northern Catalonia, for example. So of course the, the situation of the language is very different and when I like in this in this episode, if, we, if we're talking about um, language policies and uh, issues that come up with the organization of, of Catalan, what I'm most familiar with is what is happening in Catalonia.
0: Hmm. Hmm. Um, of course, like you can speak best from your own your own experience. So when you were doing your linguistic. Research. Did you work with members of your own family? Like, did you collect data within your own community, or um, can you just like tell us a little bit about like the data collection aspect of your work? Because I know you've also done work with Frisian and then Basque, of course, as well. Like, how is that all compared?
1: I've done so. Most most of my most of my data collection, per se, let's just say, maybe the 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 biggest experience with was Frisian Um, Mm -hmm. because. Most of my research uh, on uh, on Catalan and on Basque has been more of of an observational nature and like reading and seeing what the media is saying and more of like um, yeah more of like an introspective maybe kind of
0: oh like an auto ethnography
1: yeah kind of like an uh, like an auto ethnography but also yeah kind of like an observation of what is happening and in terms of what we know about the language policy and what we know about the, the, the results of this language policy what is happening what is not working and 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 how like how do people as in like how does the discourse in general shape this whereas in when i would do, when i did my work in uh, in friesland i did uh, i did focus a bit more on People's uh, motivations, people's attitudes, and therefore, like I, I did, I did interview people. Whereas, um, for most of my work in on the situation in, in in Catalonia, more rather than interviewing people, I'm trying to see what the big, what the bigger discourse is. Um, so, in the case of Frisian, I did that. I did interview people, and that required me. So, it depends. Like, I use interviews and surveys. Those surveys are easier if you want to reach a lot of people. Um, Because you know, you can just send them out. You can uh, norm. Typically, you can you will get more responses. They're also easier to process. Generally, the responses because people just have different choices, and therefore you just like A, B, or C. Um, The problem with surveys is that you have to like the design of the survey has to be very good, otherwise, then when you're processing this. Maybe you don't get what you actually wanted to get, so the, the, that's a that's a big problem with uh, with surveys. Whereas uh, if you if you do interviews, you will get what you what you want to get. It's just that you will probably not get as many answers, and it takes a long time to to process them because you have to like listen to them again and transcribe them and all these things, right? Um, but yeah, and I was I was lucky enough when I was in um in Friesland that I was also volunteering with Afug, which is an organization that they have there for the promotion of the Frisian language and creation of materials, etc. And uh, so because I was volunteering there, I had access to the teachers that were teaching Frisian and because one of like my my re- my main research question when I was there is why do adults that don't speak Frisian want to learn Frisian? So what I did is I, I used that network to get surveys and to get people to uh, to interview as well.
0: Can I ask you about your the creation of your survey? So like you said, it's surveys are good for reaching lots of people, but then if you don't have a well-made survey, then you can kind of go to all this work for all for naught. Uh, so did you have someone help you create the first survey or was it like trial and error? How how did you decide like how to how to design the survey? Yeah.
1: I'm going I'm going to explain I'm going to explain two things. Like well first I'm going to explain um something about a survey that um that that didn't actually work out and then I'm gonna explain the, the, the one that actually worked out. Um so and I've I have recently been working uh, on this data, but um so I, I made a, a survey. Um this was after first year in Friesland and after my first research in Friesland, we started a whole new project in which we were trying to uh, also study the uh, ideologies that go behind automatically switching to the dominant language, right? And then, and this idea that it is impolite to speak the minority language outside the group that you think speak it. And the, the main, the idea at first was to have a lot of workshops and a lot of people participating in them. And so we thought that uh, because it was, um, it was targeted to so many people, we, we thought we need surveys and we need a survey that can be easily quantifiable. Now, I don't, we don't, we don't know if the survey would have worked in that context, but, uh, what happened is that, I got accepted here in Santa Barbara and everything had to be rushed in one month and a half before I left. And so we ended up having 15 participants instead of like the 50 that we thought we would have. And what happened is that it was designed to have 15 or 50 or more participants. So the results of the survey were almost impossible to process from a data perspective because you didn't have enough points and Um, And we were lucky that at the end, we decided to add a couple of open-ended questions in the survey, which is what gave us actually the information, which is like a very mini interview with the people that were there. Um, So that's one thing. You need to know um, how many people will answer the survey to get, like to to design the survey even. Uh, Because if you want to compare, like, uh, in this case, we wanted to compare... Things uh between different groups, and we wanted to compare before the workshops and after the workshops, so there's a lot of comparison to be done, but if you only have fifteen people, this is not gonna work because you're just um you're you're cutting the groups too small um so that that's one thing that happened, and then my so in my first research in which I was looking at um a speakers of frisian that was that was my m a thesis so in that case, I did have um my supervisor with me. Eva Dosa, who is in the University of Groningen, and she helped me design the survey with other surveys that she had used before. And then we also looked at other literature that talked about the issues of new speakers. And then basically, there was this thing of uh, every question and every um, and every possible answer that I can think of for this question, if I can justify it with previous literature that has said that these may happen. So that that kind of gives you an idea of what you can uh, of what you can ask and, um, and what you may what you may expect. You also try to be open. Um, and some, sometimes you sometimes you will limit your responses. So what I mean is sometimes you would you would have um, six different responses to a question, but you decide to go only for three because there's a previous document that only asked for three, and you actually want to compare. So. That's also something that uh, to take into account. So it is a it is a long process. I think like designing the survey was the most of the time uh, for the m a thesis.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that was on Frisian. You said
1: yes, that was on Frisian.
0: Yeah, yeah, I feel a little bit intimidated about surveys actually because for some reason I just have this feeling like. Like you said, like most of the work is just creating the survey, and then I feel like once you've given that to someone, like once you've released it into the wild, then you kind of like can't stop it, and like that, it is what it is, and you can't get it back to to make changes. So, so yeah, so I really haven't done too much with surveys because I, I just, yeah, like I said, I, ha- I'm, I think I'm intimidated of them.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely, it is, it is a bit intimidating because it's true that uh, what you, you said that. Once you launch it, it's there, and you to change it because um, you cannot have different service for different people. It has to be the same. Yeah, it is. It is a bit intimidating, and of course, like when you when you start processing your survey, even if you did it well, you will see things and be like, "Oh, maybe I should have asked this other thing," or because um, also like you don't want to overwhelm the participants, so it it should never be like it. It's normally two pages both sides so like four pages no more than that because nobody's going to nobody's going to answer more than that i mean unless you actually pay for their for their time but then you also have to think about people getting tired and it gets complicated if you ask a lot of questions so you have to keep it as 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 simple as possible as well
0: Mhm. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned uh briefly about your work where you were studying the motivation behind new adult speakers, so people who didn't grow up speaking Frisian but then they decided to learn Frisian for some reason. Can you share a bit about the findings of that paper that you wrote?
1: Yeah, um so this is this was actually a follow a follow up of this MA thesis, um, and what we did was with a couple of uh, colleagues uh, from Groningen and from Amsterdam, we carried out some interviews uh, with people that were learning uh, Frisian, both in Afug, in this organization for the promotion of the Frisian language, in which they they have this this official courses where you actually go to class and it's like a normal any normal second language learning environment. Um, and we also interviewed a couple of people that are in the Frisian organization, uh, the University of Groningen, uh, and they are non-Frisian speakers. But the organization offers some sort of, let's just say, it, it's it's language courses as well. But it's kind of more informal because it's like between students, right? So it's it's a language course, but it's not the same as actually going to a class with a textbook and with a teacher. Um, so we interviewed these people, and we and we kind of expected from previous literature that um people would talk about personal motivation so in general there's this this there's this, this uh, distinctions in motivation of like instrumental motivation meaning like you learn something because you want to improve maybe your um your socioeconomic status so you want to improve your job and that's mm-hmm. mostly wh- why people learn uh, things like english or big languages uh, there's integrative uh, motivation. So if you want to learn, um, if you learn a language because you want to be part, become part of a community. Maybe if, like if I move to Finland, maybe I w- want to learn Finnish for integrative motivation because I probably can live in Finland without Finnish in, in English and and work. But there's a part of me that will not be like I will not be integrated in part of the of the Finnish. Uh, sphere right so that's one thing and then there's also personal motivation which this is a bit tricky because this can range from oh i think it sounds beautiful to it's the language my grandmother spoke and i want to reconnect to that so this this has a lot of a lot of different things under the umbrella of personal but um in general other other authors have found that minoritized languages in general people learn them for personal motivations, right? For these because because they like it, or because there was somebody in their family that spoke it or because their new boyfriend speaks it, whatever, and they want to uh, they want to do that. What we found is this, is that normally people start because of this. So the the first um going to the first region election was because you had some personal reason. But you only stick to it and continue if you actually want to integrate if you actually want to become part of this Frisian community that maybe you grew up in Friesland in the city and you didn't even know that was happening, and then you get in touch in touch to it through your personal motivation, you discover that there's actually something else that you want to be part of. And then that integrative part also also existed. There was a little bit of instrumental part, yes, because at the end of the day, it's, it's a language that is also used in in some of the uh, administrative levels. So there's a, there might be some people who actually needed to improve a little bit their um, their job, but it tends to be mostly the personal integrative parts, which is in general what you found for minoritized languages.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. So it's it's almost like there's like a hook, and then to like keep you learning though, to, to keep you like on the path, you need like more than that initial spark.
1: Yes, exactly, and it's kind of also what. So in schools in the province of, of Friesland, there's not a lot. Like they don't have to teach Frisian, but then there are some schools that are what they call trilingual schools um and what they're doing is this these schools like they're public schools just like the others but they decided to um teach kids with dutch Frisian, and english and what they're doing basically is like hooking english, hooking people from english right being like oh you know if your kid comes here they will learn more english they will be better at english and but we also teach them frisian and then after that if if the kid happens to also get like Inside the bubble, and wants to like then they they will continue and they will learn more freedom, but there's, a, there's there's this first hook of like we need to catch you first,
0: yeah, that's really interesting. Um, okay, well, I can't let you go without telling me more about Basque, so I don't really know that much about Basque, but like it just seems like a really interesting language, like it's an isolate, right can you can you tell us more about your work with Basque?
1: Well, um I got I got the Basque fever when I was nine or ten or something like that that I started being interested in, in Basque. Um and then when I started university I, I, I started taking some, some classes in Basque. And um yeah, I mean one of the one of the things that make that make it so interesting for linguists as a whole is the fact that it's not Indo-European, that it's an isolate, that um that it's an ergative language in the surrounded by so many non ergative languages. Like it works so differently from the languages that surround it that it's a it's a bit of a mystery. Um why is it there? Why it why it became this way and why and why it survived actually that's one of the, the big the big mysteries I personally like I I've been like I've studied Basque uh from different perspectives. Like I've studied um, so one of my first research, like scholarly research was on uh, trying to understand the role the translation had played in the normalization of Basque. Um, that is because in the 1980s, when, um, uh, when Spain transitioned from a dictatorship to democracy, and then languages like Basque, Catalan, and Galician were made co-official in their territories, and then, um, legislation was passed to make them also languages of schooling, uh, at that moment in time, all these languages were like, okay, and now we need to translate a huge amount of literature for these languages to actually be successfully used in schooling according to the curriculum that the Spanish government had in school, right? And so there was a huge effort in translation that was put and that changed the Basque language quite a lot. Because, you know, when, when you, when you translate, you end up creating new models also of how to use the language, et cetera. So that was one of the things that I was, that I was looking at. And then more recently, I've looked, I've looked at Basque from a more quote unquote structural linguistic perspective. Um, so one, one aspect of Basque that is quite fascinating, uh, is the so-called allocutivity. And that's the, that's the fact that, um, in certain contexts, um, certain social linguistic contexts, the verb in Basque will take different endings depending on who I am talking to, even if that person is not part of the sentence.
0: Who you're talking to?
1: Exactly. So if I say it's raining, I, I can say it's raining and that's it, but, um, I can also say if I'm talking to Somebody that I'm very familiar with and I'm using a very colloquial language I can say it's raining and then the verb will change if I'm talking to a man or a woman if it's familiar if it's less familiar or like that's different. there's different possibilities there and uh, that's one, one, one aspect of Basque that is quite interesting and that I've been looking at recently um, and how it works and how it's been used in in literature uh, in corpus etc that's
0: cool that's some
1: things that I've been looking at in uh, in Basque. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Does it work across um, like vertical and horizontal distance? Like, if you don't know someone well, or like if they're if you know them well, but they're like just higher status to you, does that affect it?
1: Actually, it's it's also uh, it's it's one of those things that is disappearing, right? Because it's disappearing because like most most Basque speakers nowadays. Learned Basque at school, right so and they learned the formal language like the school language and school language does not does not include that necessarily um it's also a trait that 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 it was already kind of disappearing because it's a very like you can use it for for a lot of things, but it's normally it's normally something that only manifests in very colloquial speak speaking, which means that you know like in general when when a language starts to die out, this is one of the first things that that gets lost because it's seen as a bad thing right like even even parents would 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 tell their kids not to use it because it's a bit too much um in some for for some for some speakers so it's something that is that is kind of disappearing also because if you are a new speaker of Basque, these forms like the the Basque verb is super complex already as it is. And if you have to add this, it kind of like exponentially multiplies everything that you have, that you have to learn in every paradigm. So it is, it is, it is complex. And, and that might be one of the reasons why it's, uh, why it's disappearing. Um, however, at the same time, it is, it is something very, so that, that, that was, that, that's a bit linked to what I, what I was doing with translation at first. Um, because one of the problems with translation into minoritized languages is that, When the, when the minoritized language becomes standardized, which happened with Basque, with Catalan, with Galician, there is a point in which you, the translator is so, it's kind of like forced to use a standard language to a point in which then the translation is weird. Like I, I've I've seen it myself. Like I remember this, this whole interest came because I remember my, my father was reading a book about some, thieves and the police and whatever and it was uh, it was a book that originally was in Swedish he was reading the Catalan version I'm not sure I will assume that the Catalan version was translated from English not from Swedish but I'm not sure about that but I remember him telling me like I like the book, but it's difficult to read because, like you know, these thieves speak like they are professors, and that's weird. Yeah, and and that's something that a lot of that that it happens in a lot of minoritized languages, and it makes people kind of like even speakers themselves be like, it kind of becomes like an effort to read in your own language because it sounds weird. Uh, But of course, the translators then have the whole thing of, well, yeah, but I cannot use like you know, like there's this whole idea that translation has to be monolingual, and so I cannot start doing code switching or whatnot. Um and in the case of in the case of Basque, I mean there is like all these languages do have a way of doing it internally, just a way that um that it's been dying out. In the in the case of Basque, this allocutivity that marks such a low quote unquote low register of the language, it's an informal colloquial register of the language. It's something that it's very that could be very useful for this thing. And it's something that that um that is also It's also very interesting from a linguistic point of view. So it's one thing that, that maybe, you know, like, um, should be, should be kept. And what I found in my, in my recent paper is that it's actually still something that it's used in, in literature. So that people that write in Basque or people translate into Basque are actually using it. And there's other authors that have been talking about how the fact that this was used in the Basque dubbing of the Japanese cartoon uh, Dragon Ball gave it a little bit of push toward, uh, among some young people as well, right? So there is some conscious effort of using it in some in some again like in some books for young people or in uh, cartoons. So there is some push of using it and trying to revitalise the use of
0: it. That's really interesting. So I think, I think what I'm seeing and what you're saying is like some stylistic shrinkage in Basque, whereas because it's now in the schools and it's been standardized, like the quote unquote high registers are being used, but then like the, the low registers are kind of falling out of use. The opposite thing is happening in Amami in the language that I work with, where the home domain, so like the low registers are still being used among families and friends but then the way you would speak at work or in like official context is like completely gone so it's very difficult to find these kind of like quote unquote high registers that's so interesting though yeah
1: i think i think it's very interesting because like you could you can observe it also in the minorities around europe like before like if they're not if they're not standardized it's exactly what you said. Like the high domain is difficult to find. People don't know how to, how to speak in the high domain, etc. But at the moment that they become standardized and they become used in the public sphere and they become used at school, especially, um, there's this thing like towards the language of school, right? Like there's a lot of. I think I think this is something that is that is improving now in in Catalonia. But when I grew up, so I was born in 1991, and the normalization of Catalan started like in '83 or so. So I was born in the middle of the first big effort of normalizing it. And in schooling, it had already been like um, established. But it was established, it was this effort of trying to standardize it, of trying to teach everyone the standard to a point that there's a lot of words that my mother says that I don't say anymore. Um, because school told us that those words, and it's, it's not like those words were bad words or even, it, it was not even, uh, that those words were Spanish words, which yes, I mean, of course, um, that's one other topic that a lot of, a lot of the low register includes a lot of code switching, but it's just normal. It's like, because in everyday life, everyone is code switching. So there's this, there's this thing of trying to go to the standard. And there's also this thing of, in 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 things like translations or dubbings or whatever, this pressure of the product has to be monolingual, and in a society that is not monolingual, that's always a weird thing. At the end of the day, like you will switch, you will mix, and like I understand the the pressure of the monolingual product, but that also makes it weird then to consume because it's not how you would normally speak.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Okay, well Gillam, thank you so much for sharing your work and your experience with us. Where can people find you if they want to learn more about your research or find you online?
1: I'm very I'm quite active on, on Twitter, so um Twitter is a good start. Um so it's just Gillian Belmar, that's my Twitter. Um in there I also have a link to my website and in my website there's my email as well. So yeah, feel free to contact me and uh, via Twitter or email, and I'll be happy to talk to anyone interested in minorization as a whole.
0: Awesome! Thank you so much, Gillum. Thank you. You've been listening to Field Notes, a podcast about linguistic fieldwork. This podcast is hosted and produced by Martha Satsui-Billens with production help from Laura Satsui. Our music is by Lobo Loco, and our logo is by Eville Designs. If you have a question or fieldwork experience to share, you can email us at fieldnotespod at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at lingfieldnotes. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave us an Apple Podcast review. Thanks for listening. Thank you.